0: Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
1: NerdWallet, finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Oh, my God. This, you know what this is? This is, I, I printed it out and sent it chapter by chapter to my parents. And, and there, the, my mother saved it. And she put them in a three-ring binder. Um, Amazing. And it was, like, it says M&P, Mom and Pop, to follow what you've got. This is Chapter 7. Um mm-hmm. it, and it's the whole book, uh, and she just saved it as I sent it to them in a kind of serialized fashion. And I think my my father functioned as a kind of editor for me.
1: That's so important to have that, I mean, whether it's as explicit as that or this implied audience, someone that you feel okay, Yep. like kind of being yourself with that you're not trying to impress them. Right. I don't know, I think it's a like an overlooked part of writing life, you know, who
0: you're writing for. Mm-hmm. That you want to say something to somebody is where it all starts, right? Yeah. I'm Michael Lewis. Welcome to Other People's Money, a Liar's Poker Companion. This is episode four, and we're going to call it, well, let's call it Bond, which is one of the many titles that I considered for the book that became Liar's Poker.
1: All right, we're rolling. Let's go.
0: We're going to need a lot of throat coat tea. All right. Liar's Poker, rising through the wreckage on Wall Street. Do I say this? Written and read by Michael Lewis. Chapter one, Liar's Poker. Chapter two, never mention money. I got to say that when I was reading Liar's Poker for the first time in 30 years, it was not entirely pleasant. It wasn't entirely painful, but it wasn't entirely pleasant because I was watching someone learn how to write by doing and watching myself kind of become myself on the page. I was determined when I read it not to succumb to the temptation of trying to rewrite it on the fly, but I I swear I would have rewritten every third sentence. Man, was I tempted to. So today I want to dig around a little bit in the whole subject of, of how someone is trying to say something finds the voice in which to say it.
2: Yes, I'm recording.
0: I met Ira Glass back in 1996 when I was covering the presidential campaign for the New Republic, and he was starting an unknown radio program called This American Life. And he asked me to come and read some of my pieces for his show, just right off the page. And I loved what he was doing. He was sort of experimenting with narrative in radio— And I, of course, like everybody else in the world, watched his career not just blossom, but change radio and podcasting, uh, and an entire generation's approach to telling stories on the radio. But Ira wasn't always Ira. He started
2: out sounding something like this. Some analysts say sorghum is representative of a much larger problem in the world economy. As poor rural areas become linked to national and international markets, Investors, farmers, and big companies choose, understandably, to produce the foods that will make the most money in the national and international economy.
0: You actually think more about your work than I think about my work. You're you are you're more articulate about it. You have a theory of your work. You have You're able to teach it. I've done none of that. So I thought I will save myself a lot of trouble by having in studio you with me talking about both of our earlier works. And you'll help me understand the reaction I had. Um, but we're going to spend at least as much time talking about your early work as my early work. Okay. So, that's the reason we're talking. Okay. I listened to, you sent me maybe six or seven pieces. And I listened to all of them. But I'm just kind of curious. When you go back and and listen to your early narrative pieces, What do you, what's your reaction to them?
2: I mean, it's a mix of things like, like partly the way I'm performing in them is killing most of what's good about them. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't understand how it is. I ended up like, I I really was like in my mid thirties before I figured out how to perform on the radio where I could sound like a person talking, like, like I'm just so stilted the way I'm reading. So that's really hard to get through. Most Americans aren't aware of it, but every time they set foot in the produce aisle of the local supermarket, they're benefiting from some controversial economic policies. I did a whole series called Supermarket Stories. It was the first thing I ever got Grant money to do. Every story begins and ends in a supermarket to a scene where I'm pointing out specific products and saying, when we buy these, we're screwing somebody over. You may be familiar with some of these international grain companies from their products in your local grocery store. Ralston Purina makes corn, wheat, and rice check cereal. Anderson Clayton manufactures wishbone salad dressing. CPC International is behind Hellman's mayonnaise and Skippy peanut butter. And Cargill is one of our country's largest beef packers. It's like didactic, it's like do-goodery, it's trying to teach a lesson how did this even end up on the air?
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> it raised a question in my mind, and the question it raised in my mind was, why did you get into this racket in the first place? What do you think you
2: want to do when you start doing radio? I mean, I really stumbled into it. When I started off in radio, it was really just a fluke. I was just looking for some summer job in the media somewhere, And I applied at ad agencies and radio stations and TV stations. And I talked my way into like an internship in the promo department at NPR, which at that point was less than five years old. And you could just walk in the door. So like, I was just like, I was just out for fun. And then (laughs) But it's so funny because what it doesn't sound like in the Mexican supermarkets is fun. No, it doesn't at all. It really, it's really not fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's It's deeply unfun. Today, though, thanks in part to low Mexican wages, the tomatoes and cucumbers are cheap. For National Public Radio, in the produce aisle, I'm Ira Glass. I really was filled with a righteous sense of people must know. And and at the beginning, like, that's a lot of the journalism I was doing was like the kind of, like... People need to know this. People must know. And then, and so that was like one whole trend of what I was doing. So, in the beginning, you have no confidence at all
0: in how you sound. Yes. Which is odd because what you're now maybe most known for is how you sound. That is really weird. Yeah. I mean, when I was re- reading Liar's Poker, I thought one of the things that embarrassed me was in addition to like just like the ham handedness at the level of the sentence and my kind of ineptitude with the pacing, and there were a bunch of things that were just technical problems, Mm -hmm. is that I sensed I wasn't completely me for long stretches, that I was like, I could see I was reading, like, The Education of Henry Adams when I was writing this, Hmm. or I was thinking about Tom Wolfe when I was writing this, or that I was imitating other voices rather than just being me. And I could actually spot the point in the
2: book where I thought, Hmm, that is me. Now it's me. Could we just pause? Like, what is that moment? I, I, uh, I'm very curious. Like, what, what what's the turn? The turn where I become very
0: comfortably me, and then but then I go out again. It's like a bad radio signal. But it, the first time I say, "Yeah, that's me," is when I'm actually on the trading floor of Solomon Brothers, ripping someone off for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the middle of a scene that I kind of get lured into, and I'm naive where I, a Solomon trader uses me to abuse a Solomon customer. Yeah. And I'm de- selling him AT&T bonds. And the, the, the guy who I'm selling them to, I call Herman the German. I just jammed bonds, albeit unknowingly, for the first time. I'd lost my innocence. But what did I tell Herman the German? Don't let your $60,000 loss bother you too much. You have a short memory, and you'll soon forget. Sorry I'm new at this, and guess what? Ha-ha. You've just been had. Hi, um, sorry to take so long. It's been, uh, really busy here, I said. Rifling through the range of tones I might adopt, I was unable to find anything exactly appropriate to the occasion and settled on sounding cheerful. I must have managed an expression halfway between a brave smile and the grin of an idiot. Dash Riprock was watching the charade and laughing. Now that was unnecessary. I flipped him the finger. I was more embarrassed for myself than I was concerned for Herman. I, um, um... I just spoke with a trader, I said to my new customer, and he said that the AT&Ts didn't do very well overnight, but they'll definitely come around soon. What is the price, he asked again. Uh, let me see, about, well, about 95, I said, and felt my face wince. Oh, he shouted, as if he'd been stabbed with a knife. He'd lost all ability to articulate his feelings. His primal Teutonic scream, Captured for all time, the collective pain felt by the valued customers of Solomon Brothers. <laughs> that stretch, I'm so in the event and still so outraged when I'm writing it that I, don't, that I don't think of anything, I don't think of how I'm doing it. I'm just trying to get it across the way I felt it. And it came out sounding like me, sounding like me, recognizable me to me now. Uh, And it was the first time when I was reading the book where I didn't kind of look up at the producer and say, "Can boy, I really would like to change this. It was a stretch of, you know, seven pages or whatever it was where I thought, I actually wouldn't change any of this. So it felt more consistent Mm. with with who I was going to become as a writer. Yeah. But never mind me. Coming up after the break, we're going to find out when Ira started to find his voice as a writer. And where... As it happens, it was at a cookie factory. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter.
3: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first-ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing... I encourage you to find out more or even enter the Unconventional Awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking, win a donation to a charity of your choice, and much more. You can enter before July 31st at T-Mobile.com slash Unconventional Awards. That's T-Mobile.com slash Unconventional Awards. I'll save you a seat.
1: Terms and conditions apply. Okay, I'm back with Ira Glass. I'm
2: curious, when was the first time you said, huh, yeah, that's me? I mean, f- like, f- like in listening back or when I was making this stuff? when you were making the stuff. When I was making the stuff, uh, consciously, I remember when I wrote, uh, there's a story I sent you on on the anniversary of the Oreo cookies. Yes! (laughs) Which, 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 Which is just not a great story. The cookies pass under a roller, which flattens them, then travel through a cooling tunnel. The cream is added by three spinning drums, one behind another on the assembly line. The first drum places a row of chocolate wafers face down on the conveyor belt. The second drum squirts cream on the wafers, The third drops a face-up wafer on top. In the time it takes me to finish this sentence, this machinery turns out 400 Oreos. But I remember when I finished it, I was like, I remember feeling like, okay... I finally got it. I finally know what I'm doing. And, it, and and it's so funny. Like, it existed that way in my memory for decades until, like, a couple of years ago to give a speech. I was like, I wonder what that story is like. I, I should pull that out. And I heard how just utterly mediocre it is. Well, you know, the choice of subject is brilliant. It's the
0: 75th anniversary of the Oreo cookie, which I did not know is by far and away the most popular cookie in the world. Who knew? I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know it either. But, I mean, the the, the Oreo cookie is like... It's, a, it's, it's like a soliloquy. It's a monologue <laughs> yeah. on the Oreo cookie. It's not that it was bad. It was good. But it was just, it's still. It's nobody would notice it as being anything special. I think that's right. I yeah. think that's right. It, it's a successful NPR story.
2: It's funny, like, like when you say this, like, it reminds me of this thing that Elise Spiegel, one of our producers uh, at the radio show, said, like, very early on, it was like a year or two into making the radio show, and she pitched a story that was actually the same story as one of the supermarket stories that I did, like, years before at that point. And I was like, oh, my God, I did that story. Like, mm-hmm. let's pull that out and see if, like, we can, like, salvage something from it. And I remember she listened to the story, and I remember she came back, like, wow. And she said, like, wow, there's no sign that you have any talent for radio. <laughs> she's like, there's no sign that you're going to make it. Like, there's just nothing in here. What do you say to that? I was, I mean, I mean, I was very willful and marching forward, I guess. Like, yeah, I mean, I, she's right. Like, she's right.
0: I think we, we must, we, we shared this quality in that I think you were, neither you nor I, cared all that much if there was a sign (laughs) that you were going to make it. You were just going to do it anyway. Yes,
2: that's very true. Yes. Yeah, I liked doing
0: it, and I was just going to keep going. There's an analogy with my experience. It's actually almost exact. How so? Well, like you, I didn't grow up, like, wanting to be a journalist. I didn't work in school newspapers. It would never have occurred to me to work in school newspapers. Yeah. Uh, And and I didn't have any literary ambition. I didn't—you know, in New Orleans, I didn't— I not only didn't know anybody who had written a book, I didn't know anybody who read a book. I mean, it was just not—it was not an intellectual culture. I mean, that's not completely true. My father is a kind of intellectual, but just generally. But by the time I'm sitting at Solomon Brothers, you know, there's all this stuff around us being written about Wall Street and often about us. Like I, I come in to work in the morning, in the first. Few months and there'd be an article in the New York Times about what was going on in Solomon Brothers, Mm -hmm. and it was it was so different from the lived experience Hmm. that the journalism that I saw about what we were doing was so pale and so uninteresting and so colorless that it in no way captured the feeling of the experience of being inside the place, yeah, and in no way told the story of the place, and so I have in the back of my mind. These people I read when I was with flashlights mm-hmm. under my sheets when I was supposed to be asleep, you know, on school nights. George Plimpton and Tom Wolfe and how fun that was. And I thought, you know, this stuff, the way journalism works, it's leaving out all the fun. So I had that sense when I sat down, like, I'm going to put the fun back in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this the way I would talk about it with a friend over a beer.
2: I mean, it's funny, listening back, it really sheds a lot of light on conversations that I had with my parents, where they were hearing the work I was doing and telling me that I should go to medical school. And I remember (laughs) at the time feeling like, well, you are very not supportive of my dream, you know? And But now, like, listening back, I realize, like, oh, wait, no, they just heard the evidence in front of their ears of, like, oh, this isn't good. Like, this isn't good what you're making.
0: My version of this, it's a happier, waspier version, is that my parents seemed to be view my like career such as it was with as a matter of indifference for a very long time. And like it was just as long as Michael's happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but though they didn't have any strong reaction, strong positive reaction to the early stuff I published, my mother would take the letters that I wrote and circulate them to her friends because she thought they were so funny. huh and and to this day, when I'm in trouble as a writer, I write it as a letter to my mother. Oh wow. When I need to start. So you just re- you just read the book, right? You just yeah. reread it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what you made of it. You can be as rude as you want because I'm I'll probably be ruder.
2: But what struck you about it? I mean, it struck me honestly by how much of you is in there. And I get what you're saying that the writing style often doesn't sound like you at all and there are sentences that are just embarrassing. Yep. And I would highlight them <laughs> in my Kindle whenever I would come across them, just because some of them were so funny to me, uh, sentences like, when good friend had been crowned by the gentleman of the press, you could almost hear traders thinking, foolish names and foolish faces often appear in public place. And you're like, you could almost hear people thinking. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, well, are they thinking it? Like, I don't even understand. Like, it's just like everything about it is so ridiculous.
0: <laughs> You you can see the problem I had reading it aloud for the first time. <laughs> yeah. I was just sh- I was shocked by the sentences that had come out of me.
2: Okay, so th- so there's that. But I have to say, like, th- th- there's something very essential about your later writing that is in there. And in fact, like at one point, I was like, "There's a sentence but you say it I was like I swear I just read this sentence in um in the most recent book where you say I can use any number of data points to illustrate this." And I was like, "Oh, you just wrote that sentence like, last year <laughs> in another book." Um, but anyway, but but like but that aside. Like, you recognize the story. You honestly tell, like, a bunch of, of really great stories in sequence. Like, the story of getting the job and seeing the Queen Mother is, like, good and it's a little shorty. And then, like, the story of the training program is just, like, I, was there no editor? Why does that go on for so long? But whatever. But then, like, you know, you have the story of, the, like, the creation of the mortgage department. Yep, and it's destruction. That's a fucking great story that you really nail the characters, and I feel like I know who all the people are, and I'm like I have feelings when when the dude leaves, who creates it, and then you have the story about doing the job and getting good. Which honestly, like you as a reader, you kind, I like, I definitely wanted more. You kind of go from bad to good in like two pages, and you explain yeah. the machinery of it. You you say like, well, there's this guy who I'm imitating. Then this other guy who I'm imitating, and then f- kind of I I get the swing of it, but it just happens way too fast. Given the like, there's like a kind of very before and after quality to it. No, that's right. There are things in
0: the book that be, should be shorter, and there are things in the book that should be long. Yeah,
2: yeah. And like so, so in that way, it's like it's flawed. But honestly, like the basic like skeleton of the story is there, and then there it, like the people are very clear in a way that you still write today. So it's funny. We're both more sympathetic towards each other's early work
0: than we are ourselves to our to our own work. Uh I that I cringed. I wow. mean I, was, I, I I cringed as I was reading it until it, you know, I can see pieces of me there, but it was reading it was just an odd experience because I felt like thought of these lines just don't come out of me. It doesn't, it doesn't I, sound you're like crazy.
2: Me. Like it so sounds like you <laughs> Like, it's like, it's the pacing's fucked up sometimes. And like, sometimes you're trying to explain some economic thing and you would do it so much clearer today, but like, it's there, you know, like, I don't know, like what you're missing that you're not seeing because you're you is that most reporters wouldn't see, oh, this is the good story. And here are the fun characters to write about and describe them in a way that's fun to read. Like all that stuff that to you is like, the premise is all the stuff that nobody else would do. But you're just used to being you, so you don't understand how unusual that is.
0: I don't know about you, but I've had very little impulse towards fiction. Yeah. Very little. Like, I just, I really like Mm -hmm. walking into reality and making sense of it in narrative form, finding the story that's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And that's what you've made your career doing. How has how you do that changed since the beginning? Like, how... In the mere looking for and gathering a story. How is you now different from you
2: when you're starting out? I mean, now I know how to like spot a story and I know how to, and just in a, like a technical level. And I'm sure right. this is true for you. Like I just know how to get the right quotes and lay them out in the right order. And I could just, I've done it so many times, like I could just see the thing form before I make it, like I can imagine what it can be and then like and follow it as it doesn't follow my plan, but just kind of like go with it to where it goes. Have you ever been fly fishing, trout fishing in a stream? No. If you just go by
0: yourself and you don't know what you're doing, you throw your, your fly in the stream and nothing happens unless you get lucky. Mm-hmm. But if you go with someone who's really good, they can see the fish and they, they drop their fly on top of the fish and the fish rises and strikes the fly. Wow. The fish is invisible, hmm. but they learn how to see the fish. And I think of it that way, yeah. that you get better at seeing the fish. Yeah. That, you, that you're moving through the world, and people who have not developed this muscle or this, this visual ability would walk right by something that causes you to stop and say, huh, there's something there. I want to throw my fly on top of that. Um, so, Ira, now you've read Liars Poker. What advice would you give, would Ira now
2: give to young me? As a writer. I mean, it seems like you didn't really need any advice. Like it seems like you were doing just fine. And you certainly thought you were doing fine, which I think was key.
0: The pleasure I took in my
2: own company
0: when I was sitting down writing the thing was central to the energy of the book.
2: Yeah. And there wasn't a whole lot of self-criticism going on. But but that's still true, right? Like the the pleasure you're taking in the writing is central to the making it now. Yeah, that's true. No, yeah. it's totally that's to, that's totally right. So your advice is just to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I'm sorry. This was like the, it was a smart question with a bad answer. So yeah, I, I, no,
0: no, it's not a bad answer. the The advice I would have given the young Ira is take more pleasure in yourself. Yeah, you, that's that, good you were just
2: squelch. You, you were squelching yourself. The sad truth is, though. That I was trying to have, like, I thought I was having fun, like, 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 except for the, like, you know, the, the supermarket stories, like, all of those other stories is me out there trying to, like, <laughs> live it up <laughs> as effectively as I knew how. <laughs> like, the part of me that had, like, loved Broadway shows when I was a kid just felt like somehow I think unconsciously I just wanted the, the radio stories to have those feelings. like of a, That kind a, of pop. Yeah. That's right. Like, like where you just pulled in and you love it and you're like, you're just, what's going to happen next? And then it gets sad and then it's about some big idea. And like, I just wanted to like do all that. I just felt like it's, it, I feel like it's out there somewhere. Like I feel like I'm heading there, but like, oh my God, it took a while. This was great.
0: I really appreciate you taking the
2: time. I've, I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed prepping for it. It was really fun to read *Liar's Poker* again, despite your your your, your hate of the book, <laughs> your completely your self hate. You hate the young Michael Lewis.
0: You hate twenty seven year old you. It, it's not that I hate twenty seven year old me. Hate is too strong a word. Um, I'm very wary of twenty seven year old me. Twenty seven year old me has got serious character defects that are coming through <laughs> between every line. No, no, I see and, that. And who better to judge him than the older you who has discarded right. those character defects? <laughs> <laughs> at least, no, I'm at least a little
2: more aware of them. No, that's that's appropriate. Yeah.
0: So I really enjoyed that. I love talking to Ira Glass about his younger self. And I, I loved it in part because he'd actually thought quite a bit about his younger self. And I was going to leave it at that. But then I ran across another writer whose experience with his first book was worthy of a novel in itself. It's so funny because literally, you know, there's, I think when we aren't writing well, we kind of know it. And so in her reaction, there was just no joy. There was nothing but, oh, And, and as soon as I saw her face, I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know. On our next episode, George Saunders, short story writer and novelist on The Necessity of Failure. Other People's Money is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review. You can buy our new Liar's Poker audiobook, unabridged and read by me, the author, at pushkin.fm slash liarspoker, and also at Audible. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Act 3, Campaign Diaries. Throughout this year, we've been bringing you the reportage of Michael Lewis. He's publishing his campaign diaries in the New Republic. Regular listeners to our program or regular readers of his know that at some point during this election year, Michael Lewis became mesmerized with a presidential candidate by the name of Maury Taylor. Maury Taylor ran in the Republican primaries. He shows up in, in this installment you're about to hear, and he goes by the nickname The Grizz. Soon enough, I find the parking lot. It lies directly behind a small
0: cluster of protesters, a half mile or so from the convention center. It consists of maybe four acres of concrete at the back of which is a stage. Over the stage is an American flag, and in front of the flag is a huge banner. It reads, Titan, America's newest tire company, that's Maury's company. On the stage are five large black men playing loud instruments, each of whom wears a bandana that says, The Grizz. That's Morrie. At the front of the stage, with a cigar jutting straight out from his mouth, gyrating slightly to the funk, is Morrie. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending?
3: Enter now at tmobilecom mobilecom unconventional unconventionalawards.
1: See you there. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field.